All right, everybody, welcome to today's episode. Today, I have the honor of talking to Dr. Doug McGuff, who is one of the biggest names out there in the realms of high-intensity training. And he has been actually one of the first people whose work I came across when I got into fitness some years ago. And he's just one of those people who can deliver information in a really eloquent and concise manner. I don't think I ever heard him once stutter in my life. And even when I disagree with him, I love listening to what he has to say. So hopefully we'll be able to exchange some ideas today with him about exercise and fitness. And with that, Dr. Doug McGuff, welcome to the show. Yes, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So for those listeners who might not be familiar with your work yet, uh, could you outline in a sentence or two the most important things that one should know about you? Oh, well, I guess from what your listeners would be interested in, I have been into strength training and fitness since I was probably 14 years old, at least to a serious extent, um, and got my original introduction to serious strength training through um, the Nautilus training principles. I was, at the time, racing bicycle motocross and using weight training as a means of improving my performance. When I was out training one day, I happened to run into a middle-aged gentleman that was very muscular. He was out doing wind sprints. I was out doing bike sprints, and I kind of asked him, how do you do what you do kind of thing, and it turns out he was the owner of a local Nautilus gym in the very early days of Nautilus and Arthur Jones. Um, And to make sort of a long story a little shorter, um, I ended up bartering janitorial services uh, for a membership at his Nautilus gym. That propelled my performance in BMX to the level where I actually um, competed professionally up into the mid-80s, did well at it, and I credited that kind of training with it. Um, In college, I had an interest in the biological sciences because of the influence of everything I read from Arthur Jones and Mike Mincer and all the high-intensity strength training people. Mm -hmm. So that led me to get a degree in biology, which in turn led me to pursue a career in medicine because there's not a lot other that you could do with a career in biology. Maintained my interest in training, and as my time got more pinched, became more and more interested in the time-efficient nature of training. Um, ultimately I got my residency completed in emergency medicine. Um, I had an air force scholarship, which I paid back, uh, teaching in the residency program in Dayton, Ohio, got out. And as soon as I got out as quick as I could accumulate the capital to do it, I bought my own equipment and opened my own personal training facility, specializing in high intensity strength training. And it has been open since 1997 and, uh, we're cranking out. 100, 120 workouts a week in a very small town of high-intensity strength training and never looked back. So that's it in a nutshell. Right. Awesome. And you're an emergency physician, right? Yes, that's correct. And uh, do you play with the thought of, well, I mean, I'm sure it won't be like, oh, I never thought of that, but um, how come you haven't made the transition to be a full-time fitness professional yet? Uh I think about it all the time, and there's lots of temptation to do it because it's a very demanding career, and it has, you know, gotten over time just less and less fun to do because of, you know, the healthcare system in general and and government intervention in it. So it's always been a temptation, but it's hard to let go of something that's so cognitively challenging and um, 
at times rewarding, other times not. But the, when it is rewarding, it's amazingly rewarding. It's kind of hard to let go of that. Also, there is sort of a, a jumping off gap. It's like having one foot on the boat and one foot on the dock. And when the gap between the two is fairly wide, it's hard to jump. So um, I've just been straddling the two all these years, and uh, I've enjoyed it immensely. I mean, I, I kind of get the best of both worlds. The Running a strength training facility is sort of the opposite of being in the ER. It's a very controlled environment with very um, upstanding and motivated people who are willing to pay good money to suffer in order to improve themselves. It's a, it's a complete antithesis to emergency medicine. So uh, each aspect allows me to do the other with, uh, with enthusiasm. So they kind of feed off of each other in a nice way. Sure. Um, well, I think you're one of those people who legitimately has issues fitting in the hours in the day to get everything done. So the fact that you took an hour or so of your day to chat with me is a big honor. So um, with that, let's get into what I wanted to chat about today, which is exercise. So the people who generally appear on this podcast will talk about optimizing training in various ways by manipulating variables like volume and intensity and training frequency. And I'm preaching these methods myself for the most part too, but you have a very different approach to this. So before we get into the specifics of your methodology, uh, could you describe the things that shaped your thinking uh, to create the training methods you eventually created? Sure. Um, so like everyone in the 70s, bodybuilding in that time was hugely influenced by Arnold Schwarzenegger in the movie Pumping Iron. And the typical volume that was done at that time was just really, really high. Um, you know, we're talking the, the the zeitgeist at that time was, you know, two to four hours in the morning, take a break, two to four hours in the evening, doing that six days a week on a double split routine. That was the backdrop in which bodybuilding existed at the time. And everyone tried to emulate that by copying the muscle magazines. And, you know, there were some people that had success with it, but there was also an invisible graveyard of the scores and legions of people that did exactly that thing and failed miserably at it. It was kind of, I was kind of in the midst of all that when I came across this gentleman and the Nautilus training principles and a concept of raising the intensity in order to make the workout briefer and less frequent and to give an actual nod towards recovery being an actual issue. And when I did that, after being at a just a complete stalemate and thinking that I was just someone that wasn't going to respond, um, I had fantastic results. Um, and I've seen that over and over again. But even if we were to apply 1970s, 1980s, high-intensity Nautilus principles, and I doubled down on that, for almost two decades, you know, the doing 12 to 20 exercises, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, without fail, um, because that was kind of the, the Nautilus paradigm at the time. And having, again, been chronically tired and overtrained and reached a stalemate, and not until probably 94 or 95 when Ellington Darden, who was an employee of Arthur Jones, put out a little... Um, flyer that you could order called Upside Down Bodybuilding. And this lowered the workout volume to seven exercises on an A routine, eight exercises on a B routine. It was done twice a week 
So it was a major volume drop for me. And when I um, undertook that program and that degree of volume drop, I had another big boost in my um, results. So I'd be a long stalemate and then I'd drop volume um, and frequency while attempting to raise intensity and I would have another jump in my progress. Um, and that continued as I sort of, you know, met different people. I went and trained with Greg Anderson, who was a, a famous super slow instructor in Seattle, Washington. I was in town. I happened to visit his gym. He put me through a five set routine that was, you know, just amazing. And then I ended up cutting down to four to five sets and I was doing it every fifth day or so. And again, a new spurt of progress occurred. So that just kind of put it in my mind that, um, you know, there's probably a whole subsegment of the population that benefits from increasing their intensity so that they can modulate their volume and frequency to operate within the constraints of their recovery. Right. So um, to backtrack for a second, just because uh, the people listening to this podcast are used to training volume being quantified in terms of sets and reps, um, the early bodybuilding style workouts you did for six or so days a week, which you had some negative experiences with, can you recall the parameters of those workouts in terms of volume and frequency per muscle group? Well, you know, to back up, I mean, I always, you know, like any teenager would read the muscle magazines and dabble in it and really not get much from it. It wasn't until that, you know, I came across the Nautilus training principles and worked out in a Nautilus gym that I really started to show rapid progress. But I can't say that I ever, you know, was doing a double split six day a week type routine. Um, but I did do higher volume than what I settled upon. And, you know, I had tons of friends that were, you know, just buying muscle and fitness and copying the workouts that were in there that were just, you know, getting nowhere at all. And um, so, you know, a typical Nautilus routine back in the day would be, I can run you right through it real quick. It's one set of each exercise to failure. Um, the cadence was two seconds up, four seconds down. The rep range was eight to 12. Once you reach 12 reps, you would increase weight. Um, and it would go something like this. It would be um, Nautilus hip and back, um, a leg curl, then a compound leg, which was leg extension, leg press. Then you would do pull over, pull down. Then you would do lateral raise, overhead press, chest fly, chest press. Then it would be a bicep, tricep, wrist curl, wrist extension, in with a calf exercise. That would be a typical workout. So roughly around, you know, a 12 set total body routine done in fairly rapid succession with each set to failure. These were done on old Nautilus machines, which were canned um, to make it as difficult as possible with that cadence of two seconds up, four seconds down. And that was pretty much it three days a week. And you always tried to progress your resistance and get stronger over time. Right. And, and when you say failure, we're, we're talking about actual concentric muscle failure, right? When you're actually failing the rep, correct? Correct. Um, so um, concentric failure on that equipment was, you know, fairly legitimate. A lot of times you can reach concentric failure on certain pieces simply because there's a mismatch in the strength curve. For instance, anyone doing a barbell bench press knows that you got a hard sticking point coming out of the bottom where your elbows and your shoulders reach 90 degrees. 
And you may reach concentric failure prior to a significant degree of muscle fatigue simply because of the bad biomechanics going on at that level. That was less of an issue in the Nautilus equipment. So when you were reaching um, concentric muscle failure on a Nautilus piece, the depth of fatigue at that point in time was probably significantly different than what you were experiencing on conventional equipment, if that makes any sense. And over time, um, alterations in protocol and alterations in equipment have made that even more true. So reaching concentric muscle failure on a piece of, you know, Renex or super slow systems equipment, which is, you know, extremely low friction and cammed um, very particularly, um, concentric muscle failure is occurring at a much, much deeper level of inroad or um, percentage decrease in your starting level of strength. Right. Uh, thank you for that clarification. So uh, we took a bit of a dive into your past protocols. Uh, so now, fast forwarding to today, uh, what is the type of training that you now believe is going to deliver the best results for the majority of people? Well, across the board, the majority of people, you know, let me, let me unwind a little bit on this first, is that one of the things that happened being introduced to Arthur Jones and being introduced to Ken Hutchins, people like him in high intensity exercise is a discussion and a notion that the exercise in and of itself did not directly do anything um, in terms of results. So, you know, a barbell curl did not directly increase the size of your biceps. They finally laid out the biological equation of the exercise was a stimulus. It was a threat to the body, and that threat was a decrease in your starting level of strength. And the amount of decrease was enough where it was actually um, temporarily impairing or threatening your ability to move or have locomotion. That's the depth of muscle fatigue that was occurring. That stimulus acted upon your body, an organism. And then, having received that threatful stim stimulus, the organism, if given enough time and resources, would make the adaptive response. So they're the first one to kind of lay that out to make you understand that there was one side of the equation, which was the exercise stimulus, what you're doing in the gym, and there's the other side of the equation, which was recovery, which was time-based, nutrition-based, stress management-based. But the most important thing for all your listeners to understand is the part in the middle, which is the organism. And that means your own particular body and what its limitations are in terms of its potential. And the vast majority of the population has a modest potential for muscle size increase, at least in the natural realm, without using performance-enhancing drugs or anything of that nature. If you just look across the board, muscle building potential is modest. But even modest muscle building potential can make fairly dramatic aesthetic results. Now, having said that, the people that are under the fat part of the bell curve that do have modest potential, it is my belief just through observation that most of the people in that fat part of the bell curve will tend to respond best with high intensity, either to failure or very close to it, with modulated volume and frequency, allowing them enough time to recover and actually synthesize the adaptive change. So it may not be entirely in the realm of body by science, which, you know, five sets to failure done once a week of really big compound exercises. It may be, it may not be, but it's going to be closer to that than something of 
significantly higher volume. Now, on either end of the fat tail, um, way out to the right, you're going to have people that have more muscular size potential um, and greater recuperative capacity. And those people are actually going to express their best phenotype with higher volume and frequency. And that's why we are always looking to those people for advice, because they tend to generate the results that everyone desires. But the problem is a lot of the people desiring those results are in the middle of the bell curve that can never have those results. And to the extent they try to emulate the techniques of the people that are out on that fat tail way to the right, the greater the degree to which they undermine their own potential for generating results. So that's the tricky part of kind of filtering out the selection bias and the wishful thinking of wanting to look like someone that's on that thin, far out on the right-hand side of the bell curve population when you yourself actually exist under the fatter part of the bell curve. And that's a very tricky thing to handle, um, both from you know, someone that's uh, advising or instructing exercise, but even more so for someone that is trying to self-manage or um, devise their own program because the, you know, um, easiest person to fool is yourself. Right. So lots of cool topics here. And I definitely like to get into the topics of genetics and survivorship bias. But first, just to pick apart the training protocol itself, you mentioned that a higher intensity, more modest volume and frequency approach is uh, what you believe going to deliver the best results for most people. So as far as I know, you deploy the so-called super slow type training methods in your facilities. So could you elaborate on that a little? Sure, I'll describe what that looks like in sort of an ideal training environment with ideal equipment and an ideal environment and supervised instruction. Um, so it's going to be done on very high quality equipment, MedEx or super slow systems, which is low friction. It has very good strength curves that match force output through range of motion. So that when someone reaches concentric failure, it's going to be because there's a deep, deep level of muscular fatigue and not a mechanical sticking point. Um, we do, in my shop training, personal training clients, use a super slow protocol, um, which is by letter of the law, um, a 10-second concentric cadence and a 10-second sec eccentric cadence with very slow turnarounds at the top and bottom so that the intent is continuous muscular loading with no respite so that fatigue accumulates aggressively, deeply, and rapidly. Um, so that is letter of the law. Spirit of the law functions where we let the, the speed of movement kind of declare itself organically. And the way to do that is to make certain that the trainee initiates the beginning of the movement as gradually as possible, a very gradual upload. So you're gradually going to exert force on the movement arm. And you're going to compress the skin on you know, the pad of your hand or the balls of your feet and the foam in your tennis shoes and keep advancing until the weight stack barely cracks. Once you've achieved that, then you just push hard and smoothly. And what we find is that people will express an eccentric in the early phases of the set that is anywhere between four and 10 seconds, average is gonna be about six or seven. And an eccentric that will initially be also in a seven to 10 second range. As fatigue accumulates, the concentric portion 
despite attempts to go as fast as possible, will deteriorate anywhere between 8 and 15 seconds. You're grinding out the repetition. And then the negatives, because of the way the machines can, start to try to run away with you, and it's hard to control the negative to be any slower than about 5 to 7 seconds until that fatigue point is reached. When concentric failure is reached, we'll apply what's called a deep in-row technique where you just imagine that the repetition is going to complete even though the weight is no longer moving. And you attempt to exert force in the same way you have been for an additional 5 to 10 seconds until the negative completely overtakes you and then you set the weight down. And that is kind of how a set plays out. Typically, we will run our clients between four and seven exercises, depending on which routine they happen to be doing at the time. The duration of the workout will be 12 to 15 minutes, and it will be all that they can stand. And that's kind of how it's done in our shop. Now, how it would be done in a commercial facility with equipment that's less than ideal um, would be a little bit different, and we can describe that after I give you a chance to absorb what I just said there. Right. So uh, then I understand the cadence and how that works out. And then I'll, I'll just throw a few questions at you so we can get through that more efficiently. So I understand that you do only one exercise typically for one given muscle group within one session. So I was wondering how many repetitions you would typically get with this slow cadence within one set. Um, then the next question would be, <laughs> how frequently would you typically repeat these workouts? And then lastly, how would you gauge progress with this kind of training? And how would you increase the difficulty over time? Okay, so um, most people are going to be doing between four and seven exercises per workout. Frequency in the commercial setting is almost all clients are coming once every seven days. Some people come twice a week. Some people come every fifth day. Um, we do have some clients that have high-stress lifestyles, either young children, rotating schedules, um, you know, physicians that have, you know, stressful and rotating schedules or call schedules. Those people sometimes will get pushed out to every 10 to 14 days. Um, we measure their performance using stopwatches to record time under load because at a slow cadence, it becomes hard to thin slice performance just by repetition count because the number of repetitions depending on a client's fiber type mix um, can last can be anywhere from three or four repetitions to a maximum of perhaps on the extreme end eight repetitions so you're looking at most sets lasting between a minute and a minute 20 seconds typically and the reason we measure time under load is we can thin slice performance a little bit better. So someone can do four repetitions on two consecutive workouts, but one may um, record a time under load of a minute and 16 seconds, and then the next time it may be a minute and 24 seconds. And for an advanced subject training that hard, that is a significant degree of progress. And once we've reached what we find is their um, range in terms of time under load, then we progress the resistance. The nice thing about the equipment I have is I can make resistance increases that are in small increments. So for instance, on a MedEx piece, you have a 500 pound weight stack that moves a stroke of only one foot. And you have bottom plates that are 20 pounds, you have top plates that are two pounds each. So I can progress a client by as little as two foot pounds at a time. 
Whereas in a commercial gym, they save money because the weight stack is the most expensive part by making the stroke of the weight stack longer. Remembering that when you're lifting weights, you're doing work, which is force times distance. So you'll have 10 pound plates, but a weight stack stroke length of three feet. So what that means is on that particular piece of equipment, the smallest incremental resistance increase you can make is 30 foot pounds. Whereas I can make two foot pound incremental increases. And we use a chart to kind of record performance over time in terms of time under load. And we progress the resistance for the next workout. And if we have allowed enough time for that particular client to transpire, their performance will appear improved at the next workout. And we just kind of use that to adjust accordingly. So someone, you know, a lot of times clients are really probably good to go by day four. So if we want to bring them back day four or five and they register a performance increase, we can keep them at that frequency. Someone that's ready to go by day four is still good to go by day seven and hasn't lost any ground necessarily. So the vast majority of our clients still come once every seventh day, even though they could probably come back a little bit sooner just for scheduling simplicity reasons. Um, so that, that's kind of how we manage things is just, you know, by recording performance. The neat thing about using time under load too is motor units, muscle is recruited sequentially from lower order, slow twitch, fast re recovering motor units through the intermediates to the higher order motor units, which are faster twitch and slower to recover. So if you sequentially recruit those motor units and fatigue them, depending on a person's fiber type, you kind of get a signature of what their time under load is going to be. Some people express their best performance and recruit through all those motor units in about 60 seconds. But there are some other people that are more slow twitch dominant who express their best performance at 120 seconds. And that becomes quickly evident in just organically as you train clients. You can tell um, what time under load they perform best at, and we kind of um, customize it to the particular client. Great. Uh, thank you for that. And so let's address some of the individual components of your methods. So I'm curious what you make of some of the emerging research in the field about training volume, for instance. So it's long been documented in the industry that volume is a key driver of hypertrophy and several studies and meta-analyses show that there's some sort of a dose-response relationship with volume and hypertrophy. Uh, but with some new research from Brett Schoenfeld's lab um, showed some even pretty astronomical volumes being beneficial for, for muscle growth. So I know that in a way we are comparing apples to oranges here because the cadences these protocols use are very different from what you're using. So the time under load is very different per rep and per set. But how do you reconcile this data with your low volume preference and low volume approach? Well, the research in the strength training field is difficult to interpret for several reasons. One is um, the means of measuring hypertrophy. Um, but the biggest problem that I see is most, most strength training research that's going on out there is advocacy research. And I think in the same way that um, pharmaceutical research needs to disclose um, any financial interest that they have with a particular pharmaceutical company or product, I think strength training research needs to have training protocol disclosure. 
So the researchers in the study, I think, need to disclose what their own personal training system is, because most strength training research is actually advocacy research. And what I mean by that is if you look at research studies that come to the conclusion that high volume is the best answer for hypertrophy, you will find that the authors of those studies are people that personally use high volume training programs. And on the flip side of that coin, the training, I mean, the studies that you find in the strength training field that advocate for higher intensity, low volume as the best mechanism of producing results are largely authored by people that are um, devotees and of the high intensity side of the equation of the, you know, the Arthur Jones, Mike Mincer side of the equation. So I think a lot of the strength training research is actually advocacy research. And that despite using um, scientific techniques that are supposed to eliminate bias, I think there's a lot of bias in all of the studies and you can't draw a whole lot of conclusions from any of them. Um, I do think by necessity, volume has to be an important component. And the difficult part to parse out here in a broad population is that the people that are going to benefit from higher volume are going to be the same people that have a phenotypic expression of greater hypertrophy. So those two things skew the, the data in a way that makes it appear true for everyone when it isn't. So if hypertrophy is the measure that you're going after, the conclusion of the study is going to be that higher volumes are going to produce better results because the people that are going to produce the most hypertrophy are going to be that subsegment that responds to volume. But if you don't look at the averages, if you actually parse out the numbers and you find the people in those studies that were the non-responders, pull them out of the study and then apply a protocol that involves lower volume and frequency with higher intensity, those people, even though they really didn't make a dent in the outcome of that study, would be the ones that would respond to the volume, I mean, to the lower volume. But remember, the people in that fat part of the bell curve that are not as dramatic responders, they have the choice of being a non-responder or a modest responder. So no matter how you try to parse out the results for lower volume training, in a broad-based study applied across a population, it's going to be difficult for it to look better. Does that make sense? Hmm. Uh, but I mean, wouldn't that be the point of a controlled trial that you have two different groups of people and you look at the mean responses from both groups? Correct. But if you were actually one of those guys that's in the middle of the bell curve, you got to remember that the higher volume is going to kind of identify and parse out the people that are going to bend that bell curve. If you're still the guy in the middle, that doesn't necessarily have meaning for you. And that's the difficult part of trying to use the scientific data to direct a choice of protocol for an individual. But I will say this, I do think that volume is an important component if you are seeking hypertrophy. But it, I don't necessarily think that it is a workload volume that's important. I think it may be a contraction volume that's important. And this is just empiric observation. I got zero data to back this up. 
but it's one of the weaknesses of the super slow protocol. Even though you have continuous uninterrupted loading and a deep, deep level of fatigue, what you lack is the number of repetitions. You're not accumulating 25 coupling and uncoupling episodes of contraction like you do when you're doing a five by five or doing a multi-set routine. You're actually accumulating a certain number of coupling and uncoupling episodes. And somehow I think that's an important component. Um, if someone, if you ever want to just get on the internet or if your listeners are familiar with Brian Johnston and his J reps or his zone rep training techniques, it's kind of interesting because it's a way to marry both worlds. You can, for instance, take a barbell curl and divide the range of motion into one thirds. The middle one third being the most heavily loaded and most difficult, the top one third being slightly easier, and the bottom one third being easiest. You can train, say, 10 or 12 repetitions in each zone, doing the hardest first, taking the fatigue from that middle one third to the top one third to make it feel harder do those 12 repetitions, and then when you fatigue there, drop down into the easiest portion of the range of motion and crank out 12 more partial repetitions. You've gone to failure in each zone. The total workload in terms of force times distance is the same as if you had just done 12 full range reps, but the depth of fatigue is deeper and the contraction volume is higher. But the set duration is still very brief. It still follows under a very truncated workout program, but it gets the coupling and uncoupling volume up high enough to equalize for that. And a lot of people that have not gotten great hypertrophy results in consolidated high-intensity strength training have gotten good results using this, possibly because of the higher contraction volume. So I don't necessarily think that the important component in volume as it relates to hypertrophy if you are a person that has that potential, is necessarily the workload or the total volume of the workout as much as it is the contraction volume, a minimum number of coupling and uncoupling episodes to necessitate a hypertrophic response. Okay. So, uh, you know, I, I've been trying to deconstruct the protocols that the HIT slash super slow proponents use. And uh, certainly one of the components that is most often critiqued by the non-HIT crowd is the very slow cadences, especially slowing down the concentric, what is what gets a lot of flack. And upon digging into this, I was surprised to see that there's really no clear data indicating that that would be suboptimal. I mean, there are certainly things about explosive, fast concentrics, which can be positive. For example, making use of the stretch shortening cycle could be beneficial or for strength and power development, certainly using explosive concentrics is most probably going to be better. But purely for muscle growth, it's by no means clear. Uh, but one thing that I think might be problematic is the very strong emphasis on concentric muscle failure, because that is certainly going to increase the time needed for recovery between sessions and just overall recovery demand. So I was wondering if you tinkered with the idea of perhaps not going all the way to failure, but perhaps leaving a rep or two in the tank and doing more of these really slow sets, which would um, allow a bit more volume and frequency to trickle in without messing up someone's recovery ability. So is this something you gave thought to? Yeah. And you know, it kind of depends on where you are in the equipment you're using. And I can see why that appeals a lot in commercial gyms because the truth of the matter is 
a lot of the equipment has strength curves that are fairly non-ideal um, and has a degree of friction where slow movement is not really an option. And a lot of, you know, the more well-made commercial equipment that's available in gyms and free weight equipment, I would recommend, um, I, I would recommend avoidance of pre-stretch as a means of using an explosive concentric because particularly if the biomechanics of the movement are not really good. So if you're doing a bench press and, you know, the biomechanics of that as it relates to the bicep tendon under the shoulder um, are not great. If you do an explosive concentric, um, you're not going to get a lot of hypertrophy if you rupture a bicep tendon or tear a pec muscle or something of that nature. And it's not even necessary. But for more conventional equipment, I would say start with a gradual load up and then just do an aggressive concentric that takes maybe three seconds to complete and then do a controlled eccentric of four to six seconds. And the key during the eccentric is not just lowering slowly. It's to lower with a specific intent of co-contraction. So you're actually forcibly contracting the muscle as you lower the weight. And the thing that's hardest to overcome in a commercial gym environment is the notion that the goal is to make the weight go up and down for as many repetitions as possible, as if somehow you achieving eight repetitions means that you've done more for building your muscle than if you had done six repetitions. But six repetitions done with really good intent will be better than eight repetitions done simply with the goal of completing eight repetitions. Um, I think you probably have recruited all the motor units you're going to recruit when you're probably about 85% of the way to failure. And, you know, that's, I don't know if you always hear the term leaving a rep or two in the tank, um, but I think it's more, to me, it feels like a pop-up timer, and you know when you're not going to make the next repetition. Um, and I think probably using that as a shutdown point. So I think training to sort of a peri-failure, very close to failure, as opposed to really aggressive failure with deep inroad, would probably accommodate almost a doubling of volume and might be more tolerable to a lot of people training in a commercial environment. Um, so I'm, you know, I, I would not necessarily oppose that, and that's going to be up to the individual to kind of experiment with. Another thing I would say is that for anyone that is in particular interested in hypertrophy, one of the things to do is pick a program and stick with it long enough for that to become some sort of meaningful baseline. And then change protocol in a way. How you split your routine, the particular intensity level or technique that you're going to use, but create a meaningful baseline, and then at planned intervals, deviate significantly from it. Because a lot of times the deviation from your known baseline is the novelty stimulus that's going to trigger hypertrophy as an adaptation, as opposed to other adaptations to the, to the stimulus. Right. Um, that's really well said. And of course, that's the biggest uh, issue with program hopping right there. Uh, so let's address something you mentioned in the beginning. And this is sort of the elephant in the room, uh, which is kind of the anecdotal side of things here when we look at the people representing each camp. So you, for example, Doug, uh, are a pleasant exception to this. I've seen some pictures of you and you look great. I I don't know how old you are, but I would be glad to look like you when I'll be your age. But in general, when I look at the high intensity, very low volume, super slow camp, 
and I look at the non-HIT, more conventional fitness cam, I see like a, a 10 kilogram, like 20 pound muscle mass difference between these individuals on average in favor of the more conventional fitness crowd. So um, what would you say to this? You know, if someone comes in here, listens to this discussion and says, okay, that's very interesting, but all these hit proponents don't even look like they lift. So what's the response to this? Well, I wouldn't make your argument based on how other people doing something look better than another set of people doing something. I would look at it from the standpoint of your organism, yourself, because you are all you have. And if you look on the internet, it's true that people that are hit advocates do not look as impressive as people that are volume advocates. But the people that are hit advocates are people that have more than likely are in the middle of that bell curve and under every other program they've ever tried have gotten zero results. But having tried this for their own organism have gotten some results, even if it appears modest to the onlooker. Now, if you are not one of these people that is going to respond to high volume training, then even if you use that protocol, you're never going to look like the guy on Instagram. Okay, I can use a high volume training protocol and um, I will retrogress in my progress very, very rapidly. So I appreciate you saying what you said. I am about to turn 57. So that's my current age. Um, and it takes high intensity and volume modulated training for me to get results, period. So the for a person looking at what am I going to do, I would say to it's almost like an elimination diet. If you want a good starting point, either start, if you've tried high volume and you don't look like the high volume guys on the internet, there's a reason for that. So try a high intensity volume and frequency modulated program and see what happens. Because you may just be declaring yourself. If you are a person that's used higher volume training and you look superior to me or any of the advocates of hit on the internet, Keep doing what you're doing. You don't need my advice. And contrary to a lot of people in the hip field, I don't give a shit how anyone trains. Um, if you're getting better, you know, if you think you're bigger and more jacked than, you know, a hit advocate, then by all means, keep doing what you're doing if it's working for you. There's, this is not religion, you know. <laughs> it's it just uh, really just do what works for you. And if that is working for you, I got no argument with you. I'm not going to fight with anyone over it. I mean, I got a 16-year-old son that would not do what I do um, if he was forced to. So, you know, it's everyone's got to find their own way. But I would say that if you are trying a higher volume approach and it's not working for you, you may have declared yourself as someone that may benefit from another approach and you may want to give it a shot. Yeah, I think that's that's a perfectly reasonable way of looking at it. And I also hear various arguments against or in favor of different training protocols and things like, well, I never seen someone following X protocol being jacked. But it's like, well, you know, most people are not that jacked, period, regardless of what protocol they follow. Like we see a select few that do and we put them on a pedestal and their protocols on a pedestal. But yeah, that might not be the most beneficial way of looking at it. Yeah. And most of, most of your listeners are, are younger guys, and they're not going to give a crap about this. But the super important thing to understand is, particularly if you're a young guy, if you're a teenager, you're in your 20s, um, 
you started on this journey, here's the key. Keep doing it. Don't ever stop. Do it your whole life. Um, I can, you know, no matter the training protocol that I would have trended towards or anything, I am so glad that I started weight training at a very young age and never, ever stopped. The benefit from that as you go through your life is just so off the chain. And I think that's where all these arguments about, you know, training style, volume, frequency, you know, what gets you the most full is just so besides the point relative to the benefit of resistance training carried out over a lifetime. So in your young days, yeah, try everything you can to get as big as you can, see what you can do if that's what your interest is. But if how big you get does not meet your hopes and dreams, don't just throw the baby out with the bathwater and quit. No matter how modest your results are, you got to trust me on this. Keep doing this your whole life and you will appreciate it so much. When you, even when you get to be 35, the water around you drops so rapidly <laughs> that at age 35, you will be a rock star. By the time you reach 50, if you keep doing this over a lifespan, the degree to which you become a rock star, differentiate yourself from every other person out there, just increases exponentially over time. This is a lifetime endeavor. And even if you're a little dissatisfied with how things are going right now, don't ever, ever give it up. Yeah, I think that's beautifully said. And on a sort of philosophical note, again, like we often lose sight in the fitness community of just how far we've come by investing into this lifestyle and being mindful of what we eat and working out regularly. And like you said, if we just look around, the developed side of the world around us is just tending towards obesity and being overweight collectively. So Perhaps instead of making fun of each other and pointing fingers, we should actually celebrate the fact that we are just in a much better place by being part of the fitness crowd. Yeah. And, you know, I think the only axe I would ever have to grind with anyone is, you know, I, I'm down with anyone doing any protocol that works for them. The only thing I got to say is do not use a training technique or biomechanics that are going to injure you. You know, you, you know, when you're young, you may not realize this, but the moment you um, get sloppy and herniate a disc in your back, I got to tell you, if, if, you've ever, if you ever injure your back, you will not give a shit how big your arms are. Um, so the real key is, is experiment with protocols, do everything that you want to do, do not get injured. This is to improve your performance and your health and just don't do anything stupid. That's all you got to do. And then do this for a lifetime and you will be golden. And really even modest results combined with good body composition produces such an astounding visual impact that it's, it's hard to overstate it. So, um, you know, I think just stay the course, keep doing what you're doing. Mm. Microphone drop. <laughs> that, that, was, that was a great note to end on. <laughs> so, uh, Dr. McGuff, I want to thank you for dropping a lot of great knowledge today. So I want to thank you for your time and please just uh, let people know where they can find out more about you and your work and just please mention any resources that you'd like people to check out. Sure. I think you can probably link everything just off the drmcguff.com website. That's drmcguff.com. So 
Um, probably the only other social media that I'm active on is uh, Instagram. I just post pictures there. It can link off the website or it's ultimate underscore exercise underscore is the Instagram page. If you ever want to just, you know, I pop up pictures, just training from time to time. So um, I do phone consultation. Um, you know, that's all, you know, and lecturing around the world. So that's all accessible off the drmcguff.com website. And that's it. Awesome. Uh, Dr. Doug McGuff, thank you so much for taking the time today. It was an absolute pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode and liked what you heard. And if you did, then I think you'd definitely love our SSD training and nutritional course that we recently put out with Burger Fuggerly. This program not only contains a 12-week phasic training program that you can use to time efficiently and safely build the best body you can, but also gives you four plus hours of video lectures about managing your nutrition and lifestyle to not only look good, but feel and perform optimally. So if this sounds interesting to you, then go ahead and check out sustainableselfdevelopment.com. And of course, to not miss out on future episodes like this, subscribe to the podcast and you'll be up to date on everything we'll be putting out. So thank you for hanging around up until now and see you next time.